Greetings. Welcome to Elm City Lit Fest podcast. I'm Ife Michelle Gardine, founder of the Elm City Lit Fest podcast. Uh, Elm City Lit Fest is a celebration of literature, literary arts, and literary artists of the African diaspora. This evening, this evening, I'm so excited to have my guest, Canadian. Do they say Afro-Canadian? Uh, sometimes. Yes. Yes. African. Afro-Canadian author <laughs> and 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 literary visionary Jael Richardson hmm. and a New Haven native and a bi-coastal <laughs> and Lisa, you gotta come off mute because you are mute. Literary <laughs> literary agent hmm. Lisa D. Gray. Hi. Hey. So, Jael, I'll start with you first. Say a little bit about yourself and what you do with Fold. Yeah. So, my name is Jael Richardson, and I am an author. I'm also the founder and executive director of Fold, which stands for the Festival of Literary Diversity. And Fold is Canada's first festival that centers underrepresented authors and storytellers. It takes place every May um, in downtown Brampton, which is a suburb of Toronto. Uh, in Ontario. And then uh, we also have a kids festival every fall in November, uh, just took place about three weeks ago. Um, and so that's what I do. I plan those two festivals with my team. And then I write books. And uh, that's my day job and my side job. Writes <laughs> <laughs> books. Ah, those books. <laughs> books. She wrote Gutter Child Old People. Okay. A fabulous book. It is fabulous. A lot of trips. It's, it, I can't even describe it. It just will take you on a lot of trips. Mm. It will bring out, it, it's fiction, but it's real. Oh my <laughs> God. In a lot of ways. And then, and the stone thrower. Mm. And we're going to talk about these in the second half. Stone thrower is a, a memoir yeah. about her dad, who yeah. was a Canadian a, pro football player. Yeah, it's a biographical memoir. So it's about his life. It's about my relationship with him. He was the first black quarterback to win the Grey Cup, which is our like Canadian Super Bowl. Um, and uh, he also, um, my parents were both born in the States, actually. So I'm, I'm, um, have dual citizenship, but I've been born, raised in Canada. And they got it out of here. They got out of here. And we got out. <laughs> we got out. <laughs> <laughs> And Lisa D. Gray, New Haven's own Bacon. Hey, New Haven. <laughs> Tell me about what you're doing. Uh, what am I doing right now? I am the uh, new executive director for the Voices of Our Nation's Arts Foundation, which is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, writing program for specifically designed for writers of color. We are 23 years old and have somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,500 graduates around the world. We are known for 
the Vona Experience, which is our summer workshop series, which typically takes place in late June, early July, uh, where about 200 writers of color come and study writing with some of your favorite authors. Hopefully we're gonna have Jael come soon and join us as one of our faculty members. We have some of the um, faculty that you know and love and who are world-class writers. Mm. Um, and I'm a writer as well, and I'm finishing my first novel and am waiting for some uh, short stories and some poems to come out in some literary anthologies in the next couple of months. So look for those. And one of the reasons why, uh, in addition to all the wonderful things that you do in, in the, these books that you've written, mm -hmm. um, to have, I wanted to have you both on at the same time is because we are literary visionaries. <laughs> like the Elm City Lit Fest, I started um, two years ago. Wow. And the first one was virtual. And um, this one in 2020 was virtual and um, became an this year it was both well it was it was all over the place yeah. <laughs> it was great though it was wonderful yeah it was so much fun um but one of the reasons i started it because like we know we we grow up learning so much about literature of others yeah. of, of white literature we grow up with and a lot of times folks don't learn about african american literature or any literature of any other folks until they're in adulthood right and I'm also you know I've been I was inspired because in my age I was inspired by like the 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 uh, renaissance the Harlem renaissance yeah. writers of course and then um in adulthood just finding out about and in, in living between New York and New Haven and getting into the cultural the literary cultural scene and um, going to the center for black literature and the National Black Writers Conference and, and book festivals around the, in the East Coast, like learning about so many writers. And so two years ago, moving back to New Haven, I was like, you know what? Ife means love of culture and creativity mm. and Ife is going to create some. Mm. Um, and, but I had a lot of people say to me, like, why a Black Book Festival? I was like, why not? Who, who don't, like, I want this, the, the literature of the African diaspora for everybody to learn yeah. for us right. first, but for everyone. Yeah. So um, I want to talk, um, Jayo, can you talk a little bit about like, yeah, not a bit, but talk about how, why fold. I'm sure it's yeah. part of the same round. And then yeah. talk about the significance of Vona and the support. Mm -hmm. of and, the and the other thing I forgot to mention is that in addition to Vona, um, I'm the founder and artistic director for the Our Voices, Our Stories FF project, which is a project that focuses on women of color, writers, women writers of color. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been around now for seven years. We've been able to feature both emerging and established women writers of color, folks from um, Tiare Jones, uh, Yunetta Boone, a screenwriter who is no longer with us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've, we've had some heavy hitters come through and we pair those people with emerging writers who are trying to get their work out into the universe. Mm. And we, I started that um, about seven years ago. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, I, for me, I, I started fold uh, similar. Isha. I mean, I love the idea of like uh, the the idea of if not you, then who, right? Like if not me, then who was going to do it? And and I guess for me, I I grew up uh, right out of university. I took a job as an event coordinator, and so I had this skill set, and I knew that I was good at it. Like I knew that that was something I I could organize an event really well. I understood logistics in a way that most arts people don't, to be honest, it's not generally in our skill set. So I knew I had the skill set, but I actually didn't know how to use it in a way that would mean something for me. And when I came up with my first book, Stone Thrower, I realized a lot of the literary festivals in Canada were very white, um, lacked a lot of diversity. When there was diversity, it was just sort of like one panel talking about diversity. Um, and I was watching what was happening in the States around the We Need Diverse Books movement emerging. And um, someone in Canada actually wrote an article saying, you know, what's happening there is also a problem here. And saying, you know, we need more uh, writers, uh, people of color as editors, as publishers and event coordinator and festival directors. And it was funny. I remember seeing that article and looking at the list and being like, I have no interest in being an editor. I have no interest in being, you know, in publishing as a publishing professional. But I'm like, festival director, like I, I love festivals. I have this skill set. Maybe that's something I could do. And at the time, I was also realizing that I wanted to be a writer. And I realized one of the things that is really important being a writer is surrounding yourself with writers, right? That, that it doesn't matter if you're in an MFA program or you're at the library or whatever, you just, you need to be around writers as much as possible. You need to be around readers as much as possible. You need to be sort of invested in that space. And I was a college prof and I found the college prof writing transition really difficult to manage. So I was looking for a career where I could be around writers. I see this problem and I think, well, if not me, then who? And I decided to start this literary festival. And for us, we decided to focus on marginalized writers because in Canada, we actually have a much smaller population than the US. And so what happens to our writers from marginalized communities is they get pushed to the side a lot. They get you know, brought in at the last minute. They're sort of the tokens that are pulled in. And what I wanted was a festival where we started with the most marginalized. We started with the people who were being left out and putting them at the forefront. And then, you know, if we like, if we wanted to bring in a celebrity writer, oh, okay. But it was really about figuring out the people who deserve to be celebrities and just hadn't been noticed and realized yet. And one of the things, in addition to what you spoke about, Ife, that we were really passionate about was providing a space where marginalized writers could become the experts in craft and not just experts in diversity. So often we were called onto panels or called in to speak about what it means to be a black writer or what it means to be a woman writer or what it means to be queer or what it means to be of this faith or whatever. And what I wanted to hear from writers of color was teach me about creating great characters. Teach me about plot. Teach me about, um, you know, give workshops about uh, marketing. You know, we can be experts in the profession as well as in our own individual identities. And so we wanted to build a festival where both could happen. If someone wanted to speak about disability and disability literature and they were disabled, great. But if they just wanted to talk about craft, they would also have that space and that opportunity um, and, and we really, we focus a lot on that. I think about when, when you're talking about Vona, about our workshops, it's so important for us to have 
writers from marginalized communities represented in workshops because so often white writers are seen as the experts in craft, okay. as the, the wise, okay. you know, sages on this sort of thing. Um, and and uh, I, it was amazing to me how many writers of color in particular had never been asked to do a workshop, even okay. if they had multiple books, were journalists, were all these okay. things. It was amazing okay. how many were like, well, what do you want me to talk about? I've never been asked this before. Um, and so it was really great. That's been probably one of my favorite things about it, in addition to, to providing a space to talk about craft, is allowing um, writers from marginalized communities to build a, a, rep, um, a resume where they can say, I've taught these workshops and I've delivered these workshops and they're amazing because of course they are. Uh -huh. And one of the things, uh, most memorable times that I've been having for years is going to the Center for Black Literature at Medgar Evers College. And they have an annual um, uh, Black Writers Conference. Mm that Dr. Brenda Green started um, years ago. And uh, Dr. Brenda Green was actually graced us in, in our first, in my first festival in 2020. Um, but like you said, like the workshops and being in community of, of authors of color. I was, I was uh, a judge this year selected as a judge for the Connecticut Book Awards, right? I didn't even know there was a Connecticut Book Awards. <laughs> this thing been going on like 25 years. I didn't know there was a Connecticut Center for the Book that did a Connecticut Book. What? Okay. <laughs> so when I got the email to be a judge in the fiction category, I was like, oh, let me see how what this works out. And there's six judges. And I was the only raisin in the buttermilk. <laughs> I'm giving you <laughs> And then I get two boxes of books, 36 books to read from April to August to, to do the things. It's one black book. And that was somebody that was, and it was a Yale person. Now, I, I, so my question was to the, Connecticut Center for the Book People and them. Um, how long, it, first, how long has it been going on? How do you get the word out? Yeah. Oh, and the judges were people who had previously won the award. Of course. Who worked in publishing. <laughs> it just sounded like a circle. And it was like, and it, of course, Ife, next year, you can help us bring some people, like get the word out and bring more diversity to the, I was like, mm-hmm. And what I thought was, my in my mind, I'm saying, you know, this, this, even if I did bring, introduce people to this, people of color to this, these awards, these judges outside of Oprah's list and the New mm. York Times bestseller list are not going to read, or, or, or someone that else that's in academia or in the, in the high end yeah. of the publishing industry with them is they're not going to see their book. They're not going to see their work or value in their work. And it, it just, it was like, it, it just bothered me. It was like, mm -hmm. I, like, I have to, I, like, I have to think about that. So more to come next year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. And Lisa, <laughs> let's talk about Vona mm -hmm. and the plethora of community that has been in Vona. Well, you know, Vona started, as Diel was talking, 
um, it really resonated with me because all of the reasons that fold exists are the reasons that Bona exists in the world today. When our founders started the organization in 1999, there were not a lot of opportunities for writers of color in writing workshops at the MFA level, in literary circles, in literary festivals. There just wasn't space for writers of color, for writers who were telling our stories, who were preserving our culture and allowing us to have access to the word in a way that resonated with, with us as people of color. And so the, the founders came together and created this writing program that is very specifically designed to provide a space and a place for folks to not just learn the craft of writing, but build culture and community. One of our models is craft, culture, community, because that's what we're about. We want, just as Jael said, writers of color to be seen as the experts in the field. And when we talk about writers of color, we are referencing writers from the African diaspora. We're writing, we're referencing writers from the Asian literary tradition. We're referencing writers from Middle Eastern cultures. Afri and I already said African. So, so we're, we're, when we talk about um, our community of writers, we're talking about the, the hosts, the, the, the very deep and rich community of writers who exist in the world who don't feel as if they belong in traditional writing programs because all too often those programs are quite white and folks who engage in those programs often feel as if they're not valued, as if they're minimized, degraded, and that their work is not held in as much esteem as the work of their white colleagues. And also when it comes to not just the teaching of the workshop, but the participation in the workshop and what the traditional writing paradigm, a workshop writing paradigm looks like is not necessarily always conducive to, to people of color. And that when we're receiving feedback from folks from cultures not our own, that, that there's a, there is an understanding and a knowledge gap that often makes writers of color feel even more marginalized in a, in a space where they are the other. Mm. So VONA exists to combat that. VONA exists to ensure that writers like myself, I'm a VONA alum myself, I've done VONA twice. I had the, the, the wonderful experience of being in a community of people who not only valued the written word as I did, but who also valued me and my culture in a way that I didn't get at other writing residencies that I've done, and I've done several of them. Yeah. I attended an MFA program. Yeah. And, and not that that was a bad program, not that those were bad experiences, but it just, you feel held differently when you're in a space and a place with people who share a, the same value and kind of common core beliefs that you do in terms of your culture. And so that's why VONA exists and that's what we do. And the folks who come to our program often describe it as an experience. And, and we're now gonna rebrand our workshops as a VONA experience because that's what you get. You get a full on 
experience. You get an opportunity to study with folks who are renowned in the field. Mm -hmm. You have an opportunity to work with writers like yourself. And um, some of the folks that I met at Vona back in 2008 and 2009 are a part of my writing community today. They're the mm -hmm. folks that I do the work that I do with in terms of ensuring that there are spaces where equity is a priority and that justice is a priority in the literary world and in publishing. So that's who we are and that's what we do. And want to know anything else? <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing. And, and one of the things that you that resonates with all of us is building the community of support for the writers. Um, when I started Elm City Lip Fest, like, like it, it's two years, and so many writers just in the state of Connecticut and throughout the East Coast have been like reaching out and here I have a book, I have a book, mm. like, and I, what I found in our small town, uh, not our, in our small city of of New Haven, that a lot of folks that were writing were taking their their books outside of our community because this this they're selling books, and this is what I, I like to emphasize with folks in the arts about the arts period because I'm I just on the board for a, um um a theater company and and a um, collective company. and they show a lot of uh and they of course like collective content is black theater. And a lot of times um, people expect free. <laughs> they expect free performances yeah. over the years. Um, like you, Jael, I've done a lot of events and event planning, or I've talked to, I've, I have so many friends that are dancers and performers and a lot of our professional organizations and like clubs and so the social groups, they'll ask, they'll ask for someone to either come sign their book, read their book, or or dance or sing or do something at their performance, and and they don't want to pay them. Yeah. Right. And it's like, uh, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> right. We'll have a whole deal. Like there was one instance where there was um a trio singing at a big event people paid $80 a, a plate for dinner it was a big to do and they had um the trio singing or performing and um they didn't have a table for them and they had <laughs> it's it you know they it's what in the kitchen and they even had they didn't even, like no no plates no nothing and so these people are supposed to wait for you to have your 5 hour program and perform at the beginning and at the end, and you're not feeding them, and like it's not in your budget. Like that's disrespectful. So there's yeah. a there's a also in like and when it comes to our when it comes to our literature, like mm -hmm. I tell people all the time, every time somebody's on our on on this podcast, buy the book, people, yeah. buy it. Don't say oh this that whatever whether it's in your local bookstore, Barnes and Noble, whoever you got to go Amazon, however you got to get it. Get the book, support the author. Go to the author, author's webpage. Sign up. It's a, it's a it's a community support that has to be built in within our communities as well. 
And I think, yeah, I, I, when we do fold, there's a lot of questions about whether, you know, whether you should, whether it should be free, you know, whether free means more accessible and all these sorts of things. And, you know, we've recognized or we've made the decision that having a fee be uh, accessible, the amount be accessible, but still having a fee is a really important contract between the audience and the artists. It's about saying that their time is valuable, that their work is valuable, even if they can't pay a lot. It's about saying, okay, I may not have my coffees for a week in order to be able to afford this pass. And it's not going to cost me half my paycheck, but it is going to cost me something. And I'm going to commit to being there because I pay. And that, and that's part of it too, right? When people pay for something, they are much more likely to show up than when they don't. <laughs> I, so I would part agree. of it is that exchange and saying like, I think it's really tricky when you're doing this work for marginalized communities to identify the moments for which there should be a cost and the moments for which there isn't. But I think understanding that those two things are both valuable, that there are sometimes experiences mm -hmm. that are free, that are meant to be, you know, we have a, a public fair that's like you walk through and it's about being outside and engaging. And then we have some that are theater spaces and there's limited seating. And so there has to be a fee in a sense to say, I'm going to show up and sit in that seat when I get there. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's, it's tricky, but I think both things can be important and, it's really important more so for organizations uh, to, like you were saying, Ife, to make sure we're paying artists, that we're paying them a reasonable fee for their time and recognizing it. You know, this was a big thing for us. I think we had to decide if we were um, keeping up with the other festivals or if we were going to be sort of this, I don't, I, you know, when you sort of uh, make it more accessible, it's more community-based and so you don't pay people and you sort of say, you know, we're just going to, spread the love but we decided like we wanted to be on par with the other festivals in Canada we wanted to pay artists um, a competitive fee we wanted to recognize I mean virtual is a great example when we do virtual and we're asking authors to show up a half hour earlier to do the tech for the event we actually pay them a tech practice fee because we recognize even that extra half hour is time that they are giving up. And so it's about recognizing that everything you do costs and everything you ask an author to do costs them time and time away from their book is time away from something they love. It's away from people they love and it deserves to be compensated for mm -hmm. whether that's but, a meal or money or both. And I think that, that there's, you know, those fees, the, the paying of artists speaks to the profession, the professionalization of the field. Yeah. And the fact that, yes, not only do our voices have value, but we will recognize that value and pay you for it in a way that allows you to, to do things, right? Yeah. Pay your rent. Yeah. Like, you know, to, to, to actually be a working writer. I think that unfortunately, all too often, we are, as you know, which, which is true in almost every sphere of of life, right? We as black folk writers of color are always asked to do it gratis yeah. for whatever reason, right? And and there are many, many reasons why that occurs. But I, I believe that one of the reasons that we are very committed at Bona to ensuring that writers get paid um, for the work that they provide and that, you know, it would be great if we could offer our workshops free of charge. But I, I think that that's an unrealistic expectation right now mm -hmm. because as an organization, we have to be, have some revenue to be able to function. Yeah. You know, we're a nonprofit organization. 
And even though we've been around for 20 years, we don't have an endowment. We don't have deep pockets. And that it is the revenue that we generate from our workshops that kind of sustains us from year to year. One of the things that I'm very committed to in the next year to two years is diversifying our revenue streams. So we're not as heavily dependent as tuition as the main source of revenue for the organization. But I feel like, as Jael just said, that we value things differently when we pay for them. We, we, the commitment level that we activate is a little bit different for things that we pay for as opposed to things that are free. So I think it's very important for not just festivals that, or, or organizations like ours to continue to pay writers but for other organizations, for white organizations to not constantly approach writers of color and people of color and ask us to, to be kind of like their, their support mammies in many ways, mm -hmm. right? Pay us for the, the burden that you're asking us to bear because we're worth it. Yeah, it's like, the, you know, they want you to be the crayon to color the page. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then... Um, but it, w one of the things that I emphasize as well with Lit Fest is that um, everyone that participates gets something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, it's, yeah, it's huge. And it was a blessing. Um, you, we were blessed to raise enough funds for mm -hmm. everybody to get something. something. <laughs> yep. Yep. With our voices, our stories, if I'm not able to pay the writers who participate, then I would rather cancel a show than to not pay the people who are performing any for any given event. Because I think that's just so important. We've, we've had a really cool program at Fold. Um, it's our patron program. And we actually ask people to donate to the patron program. And then the patron program gives out free passes. So it means okay. that we're actually able to offer... At first, we were nervous. So we kind of counted like how many came in, how many go out. But now we just sort of guarantee that if people can't afford it, they can get a free pass. Mm-hmm. And that's for people who are coming in from out of town who may have the money but are already forking out a lot for it. It's for people who don't have the, the income. But it's re been really great because you see the community sort of saying, this is important and I can afford too, you know, for myself and for someone else. Or um, people donate year round to go towards that program. And, and that's been a great way to be able to guarantee everyone access um, in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the events I also was, I, I was fortunate enough to go to was one of the first well-read black girl events. Like mm -hmm. I lived in Brooklyn when she was doing stuff at the library and at the Weeksville Heritage Center in, in Bed-Stuy. Um, and, and then the first, I missed the, I, I did the virtual one, but la the year before last, um, I missed one, but mm -hmm. mostly, and again, people pay for it. Authors are there of yeah. every caliber <laughs> and it's wonderful. I like mm. it's, it's, it's engaging and you see the community of literary folks that support mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. We are a half hour in and I, we got to get to Jael's. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oops. First, we're going to talk about mm. the stone thrower. Oh my gosh, mm. Jael! This it, book—it's it, well—it's a memoir in autobiography, and mm. and just your father in in Black history. Yeah. Like 
Like it's all know. those things, right? Yeah, <laughs> things. It's all the things. It is all the things. All the and it was so fascinating to learn. I think. I mean, I I, I knew that Canada had football, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I knew that was a thing, but I I didn't realize how competitive it was to become a football player in Canada, um, and to see his journey and his path as told through the eyes of his daughter, mm. I think made for a very compelling read. Mm. And yeah. also, like, as you learned very, as you had to, like, dig and, <laughs> and learn so much, because as, as Black men of his age, he just kept it in, as yeah. they do, right? He just kept it in. He was like, this is what I got to do. This is what I got to do. I know that right now, this generation of young people, yeah, mm -mm. yeah, know, it just wouldn't have happened. Your father came up and said, well, I'm just going to, and even your grandmother, yeah, they just handled it. <laughs> like, they just handled it. You know, yes, there was trauma to them. Yes, there was, you know, they held it in, yeah. but they pressed on in love. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say they held it in too, because I think it's really interesting. My, my grandmother was uh, a heavy woman, was a big woman. And I think that was like held it in is exactly what happened. Like she, she ate her stress. She smoked her stress. Mm. She, she did all the things to her body to make sure she could mentally survive all that was going on around her. And it's so fascinating to me. She was the most amazing woman. And it's fascinating to me how my dad was able to do the, like nose to the ground, always doing the grind, um, always making the right choice, even when it's like almost impossible. Like when I think mm -hmm. about um, one of the stories in, that I learned about my dad was that he had this brother who was much younger than him and who got cancer when he left for university. And my dad just going to all these games and winning all these games and then going home on the weekends for like 24 hours to visit his brother in the hospital, like the kind of mental stress, nobody on my dad's college football team knew his brother was sick. Mm. Nobody knew. And so um, it was something my dad literally like kept entirely to himself. And um, it, it's a really interesting look at like how how people can deal with trauma. It's honestly uh -huh. a lot of the roots behind Gutter Child. It's so fascinating to me that you guys read them both because I feel like you'd see all the parallels because I I wrote the Stone Thrower and then immediately started writing Gutter Child. Because, really? Okay. Because there were all these things about my dad's life about the system of segregation and racism in the states in particular that were heavy on my mind after writing about my dad's story. And I didn't want, I mean, dystopia felt like the best way to handle it because I just, mm. I didn't want to research. I didn't want to do facts. I didn't want to set it in a real place. I just mm -hmm. wanted to take the things that were on my mind and play them out. I wanted, the question in Gutter Child was, what happens when you grow up in a world that's designed for your failure? When Ugh. you realize it, what do you do about it? And of course, that's what I had just spent four years writing about in, Doing, in okay. my dad's life, right? Like he grew up in a world uh, that was quite literally designed for his failure, that was never uh -huh. intended for him to succeed and for him to become something. And, um, and so, yeah, uh, working through my dad's story and looking at his life was the, the 
foundation behind starting Gutter Talk. Oh, that's very interesting. That that's Now that you say that, I, like, it, it, it becomes even more clear, like uh, the parallels. Yeah. yeah I'm like, oh my gosh, very yeah. right through my brain. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. People, most people either read Stone Thrower a long time ago when it first came out in 2012, or they read Gutter Child and then maybe read Stone Thrower after reading Gutter Child. Mm-hmm. So to read it in like for you guys close together like that is. Yeah. So big question about Gutter Child is. The, at, at the end of the story, I'd like endings fascinate me, right? Yeah. Beginnings and endings fascinate me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you made a, a very conscious choice as a writer to 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 have the ending not be the uplifting, happy ending that that we as readers probably would want after yeah. having yeah. walked this path yeah. with our main characters. Yeah, why that choice? So the ending is a very, very big. Um, so I was writing the book. Uh, I was finishing it in 2020. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a whole other chapter at the end of the book, a whole oh. other part of the story. And when the events of 2020 were going about, and for me, that actually started with Ahmad Arbery and then Brianna and then um, George Floyd. And there were a couple of Canadians in there at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and these things were happening and I was getting like a growing frustration. The book started um, with the Trayvon Martin case and a lot like that case really played a part in some of the decisions that were made. So when I get to this point, I've been working on these kinds of stories. I've been following these stories for a while. And the ending, I would say, it's interesting that you say it wasn't quite uplifting. I think for me, um, I did have a more uplifting, a more, I would say neat, like a neater bow wrap, the story kind of ending. Um, but it felt to me like maybe, uh, maybe that was a product of my own thinking about what an uplifting story looks like Mm. and what, um, and so for me, I'm like, am I giving people what they expect and what I've actually been trained to think of as an uplifting story? And can this story ending here at chapter, whatever it is without Mm -hmm, an epilogue, mm -hmm. is there something uplifting? Is there something necessary about where the story ends. And every time I was working on the edits, every time I would get to the ending, I would read those last lines and think, oh, <laughs> you know, like I would feel this thing in my chest. And then I would turn the page and I would feel like, oh, yeah, okay, I got to edit this too. And it, it, it just, at, I never thought I could take the epilogue off. And then the events of 2020 were happening and I was like, I can do whatever I want. Right, <laughs> okay. Like, I don't owe anyone anything. I don't require, I don't follow rules that other people have laid out for me. And so I took off the ending and I just, I just loved it. It felt right. Um, now I should say it maybe felt right because I also knew there was another book coming. Like there was more and maybe part of it was for me, the epilogue too quickly wrapped up what I wanted to further unpack. Um, and so that also ended up being part of it as well. I was like, I'm ending it here because it's the right ending for this book, but I actually have more of this story that I need to figure out. And so well, it, it, there is it does leave you wanting more. That ending leaves you <laughs> wanting more. It's like, okay, so this can't be it, right? Yeah. I'm like, Lisa, but Lisa, so I want to say for me, like, even though, okay, it wasn't a happy ending for you, but it just felt like, Oh, this 
this thing happened to Elmina. Mm -hmm. If I say, am I yeah. saying the yeah. name? Yeah. This thing happened to Elmina, and she's going. It's going to recharge her. Like I got some like everything that she from the beginning of the book, from her being the one X yeah. person. <laughs> One ex got a child and a, a project, a, a child of the project. That in and of it, she she just came in with okay, a presence, and and that is that for me was so prevalent in so many. Like it was in your grandmother, yeah. Yeah. Jael, in, in my grandmother, in in so many the, the stories, and what Rowan was the hero that was set up to fail. Like yeah. Yeah. that is a cla the classic history of how we all came through this, Got how we got here. And now there's like, uh, like I said, you people have to read these books to see the juxtaposition. I don't want to give up too much of the story. Well, That's I'll say, so when, when I started the story, um, the question was, I always start, you know, in terms of workshops, it's one of the things I love to do is talk about beginnings. And to begin a book, I always have a question. It's never right, an yeah. answer. It's never a statement. It's never a solution. Yeah. It's always a question. And I work my way through the question for the whole book. Um, like for Stone Throw was, what does it mean to be black in Canada? And why do, how do I feel about being black? Um, and then for, for, for gutter child, it's what does it look like to grow up in the world that's designed for your failure? And so Elamina is this central character who, you know, she's a single X. She has a single X on her hand. Every other gutter child has two X's. And so she has to figure out why she's different and what that means. And so that's her journey. But I also wanted to look at, you know, for me, Elamina is the central character, but I actually think there's five main characters, you know, for mm -hmm. me, Elamina Josephine, Violet, Rowan, and David are all characters uh -huh. because with that question, what does it look like to grow up in a world that's designed for your failure? What do you do about it? And when do you, re when do you realize it? And what do you do about it? Each of those characters realizes it at a different moment and does a very different thing with right. what they learn. They respond, five people, um, some related, <laughs> I'll just say that, and they all respond and react to the events differently. And that's because I, I wanted to explore all the different ways, not all, but some of the ways that we uh -huh, respond uh -huh. to systems that fail us. And you know, uh -huh. David, you'll probably see parallels between David and my dad's story, because there's this part of David that's always making the good choice and the right choice in a lot uh -huh. of ways. Um, and then there's other characters that make very messy decisions. But I think throughout the book, too, with those five characters, I also wanted to look at, um, I wanted at the mo at the time you're reading the book, I wanted for each of those five characters for you to feel really strongly that that they're doing well or they're doing right or you're on their side. And also at moments be like, but why? But don't. No. Yes. I wanted, yes. I wanted people to be torn about all five of those characters because for me, that's what the Black experience is like. It's complex. There's no way to get it absolutely right. If you are wildly successful, you've left out some of your community. If you are, you know, just sort of surviving, you somehow fail the model of success. There's just all these complicated things about living a life in a world that wasn't designed for your success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to explore those things. It in Stone Thrower Girl, let me tell you about some things. The high school stuff. Yeah. 
with your hair, the hair, the hair. Can we talk? Can we talk? Cause girl, I I got my afro puffs pulled. Mm. Oh, that's not your hair. Like they were just like, and it's, then I hair thought, is a thing. It's always a thing. <laughs> always, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, hair is always a thing. So yes. in the opening chapter of Gutter Child, there's that story about Elamina's hair. Hair, yes. I was Mama didn't with, know what to do with it. I was working with a writer who read it and was like, can we can we read a book where the black woman doesn't struggle with her hair? I'm like, can you show me a black woman who, does who not doesn't struggle, struggle with, her? with her hair? And we can do that. Because if you can, right. then we'll talk about that chapter change. Yeah. Otherwise, the story is in. Right, and, right. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then there's something very real about that moment of this this white woman, yeah. right? This privileged class cast, privileged yeah. woman who has this black child who has no idea what it means to deal with this child's hair, who, who feels like it's easier to cut it off yeah. than to actually learn what it is to deal with this child's hair and how that plays out in reality every day, right? In, in the United States and in Canada with, Folks who adopt children or or um, are working with kids who they don't have that experience, they don't know, um, and I think that that's something that you know resonated with me because I know so many young people who have had that experience where they felt like you know they had been othered in their own home in mm. many ways. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Listen and. <laughs> It, I have, I've known biracial people um, and have biracial people in my family and the, the, the mothers sometimes, like, they're getting better. Yeah. They're getting better. But that that resonated with me as well as when she went to, when she was at the school and she went to, uh, oh, what's the lady's name? Uh, Ida? Did, um, Ida? Ida. Yeah. And that's such a sister. And that's such a, you know, the Ida is one of those names that like Aunt Ida or somebody that you know you're going to go get a hug from. Yeah. Like Ida was like your grandmother. That was my grandma. She is based on my grandmother. Really? <laughs> Very much so. She wow. Yeah. yeah. She fluffy. She got a hug for you. She like, girl, come here. Hey, baby. How you doing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's hey. wrong? You hungry. I mean, Ida is like probably one of my favorite characters. It was one of the easiest characters to write, I would say, because her voice, it just felt like it just felt like listening to my grandmother, like all the things that my grandmother would make me feel when I was around her. Um, but it's also so fascinating to me because Ida's the first, you know, and I don't refer to the characters as black or white in the story, but of course you can see parallels in them. But right. Yes. Ida becomes the first Sosi woman, the first gutter woman that that Elamina meets and it wasn't until doing interviews for the book that I actually realized that other than my grandmother and my mother who's much lighter than I am so I think there's a, a, a thing there too um, that I actually was not around black women at all <laughs> in my childhood mm. you know all the women um, my family is very small um, so other than family like uh, most of the family friends we had were white and so it wasn't until I was older that I had these and it wasn't actually until I would say I met my husband his family is huge um like I don't know 20 aunts and uncles uh, like 11 on one side nine on the other 
um, so many cousins. It wasn't until I was around so such many a rich range of Black folks and Black women that I could actually see what I had been missing all my childhood, all my life. Oh. And really evaluate, like, just even the, you know, when I talk to white folks, hanging out with Black people and just having a range of Black friends, I actually don't think I knew really um, until university and then when I met my husband and I was in his family, what it was like to really be in community with my mm. people. Um, and so writing this book and having Elamina work her way through what it means to be Sosi and how she feels about that and what it looks like to be around a woman that can like hug her and just by hugging her, heal her in a sense. Like I think we know people who are like that in our lives mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's what she gets there. And that is a feeling that like breaks you in some ways because, you know, we, we talked about I mean, my dad and my grandmother holding things in when somebody holds you that knows what you've been holding in. It's like, it's like an egg cracking, you know, you just ooze. Um, and those were really special moments to write. Can, can you talk a little bit about what it, the creation of the world? Yeah. Because again, you, you said that, you know, you rather than to deal with, the, 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 the constructs of reality as we know it today, you decided to set this in a very dystopian place. Yeah. And, and that requires a lot, right? Yeah. You have to really have a, a strong vision for what this place is. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, about what that looked like and what that took and, and how did you, how, how did this place become, how did the gutter become the gutter? Yeah. It, you know, how did you manifest that? I probably did it wrong. So I'll say that first. <laughs> um, it, it took me about eight years to write. And I started with the scars and the debt. Those were the two big things that were like on my mind and pictures that I just started working into the story. So Elamina has a single scar. Uh, most of the, the other gutter children have um, two scars. Um, and they also, you learn in the early pages that there's this debt that's been passed down to each child generation after generation that they're trying to pay off. And those were very clear things I wanted to, to put into the book because mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about what I see as sort of a caste system and a class system in, in the United States. That's where I, I, a lot of what I understand about the world comes from that because that's my parents were watching CNN before they were watching CBC. Right? Like I okay. know more about American history probably than I for a long time did about Canadian. So that's where my roots are. But I also, because I've lived in Canada, I also feel this sense that the things that I experience and know from the States are not just rooted to the States. And they're not just a Black experience that happens in America. They're things that happen to Black people all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at this idea of colonialism as well and the impact of colonialism. And so the story and building the world meant what I wanted to do was I wanted to take the parts of the world that I wanted to deal with and I wanted to leave the parts that I didn't. So I didn't want to place it in Toronto or Chicago or New York and have this sort of American storyline or Canadian mm -hmm. storyline. I didn't want to have to deal with different countries and the politics of different places. I want essentially all of the black people in the world to be living in one place and to talk about it though in how I see colonization working in this sort mm -hmm. of like we take over a land we push the people who have been there or who we don't like as much or who we think are not less deserving into this small corner we label them something pretty terrible so that mm -hmm. all their life they remember that they are somehow less than and I really wanted, you know, that's why the term gutter came about. I wanted this name, you know, we're called black 
and we've made that a positive and we use that in positive ways. But if you look at the connotation in, in faith-based communities, I, for Christian communities, black means sin, it means evil, it means bad. And so when you call a people that, you are intending for them to know or believe or think that they are those things. Mm-hmm. And so gutter for me was really important And I wanted this place that was sort of falling off the end of the mainland. I wanted it to be that it was the less desirable space. Um, And then the the one other space. And then the hill. Yeah. The the hill. Right. Yeah. The bushy people. The hill was sort of a later evolution because I wanted to talk about the difference in class amongst, you know. Right. Yes. People. Yeah. There are people who are able to move up, move out, move around the world and navigate things differently because of certain choices they make. Mm-hmm. But like, what do you do about the rest, the others who were left behind? And and, um, and, and what yeah. do you do about transition between the, the that that kind of middle upper yes. and the lower lower, right? Yeah. When we see, you know, the, the folks who actually go to the hill or that's a goal is to get to the hill, yeah. I think is very, that's brilliant actually yeah, yeah. and that was really that was because i did want to talk about privilege amongst mm-hmm. toasty people yeah. as well not just you can be privileged if you're a mainlander and you can be in poverty or in debt if you're from the gutter but also no they these toasty people are actually divided amongst themselves mm-hmm. because i think that's also something we see in the black community there's right. division yeah, about right. how to solve the problems that we're in there's division right. about whether you just like pull up your bootstraps and do good or whether you like go down and help the rest. And um, so that, yeah, I love those, that that world building was the hardest part, but it was also the most fun. And yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the employment slave market. Yeah. Employment thing, fair. Yeah. And then the hill people come in and, and the, it's so funny. When, people like people just part C. So, oh, oh, and, and, and then it becomes a goal to get selected by the Hill people. Well, but it's also interesting well, because the employment fair is very much like an employment fair. You know, I spent my time, um, like I said, I was an event planner. One of the things we did was recruitment and we would go and we would set up these tables and we would recruit people to come and work for us. And, you know, if you got picked, you felt really good and all this. And when you go for a job interview, that's very much what it feels like. Like somebody is offering you money and bidding for your skills. And a lot of this looks at the past, but it's also a very present day problem, not mm-hmm. just in um, the way they execute. But if you think about, you know, our school system says when you go into school and you get a good education and you get training, that you're going to be okay in the world. And you but get to actually, go out and get a job. You, you go out, you get a job and you have a boss that asks you to do things. And, you know, that's a whole other system of effort and education. And, uh, you know. And then when you get the job. Wait, and, and oppression and subjugation, right? That's because there's a it's whole a system of oppression like, and subjugation that's built in to the workforce, will, right? Yeah. yeah. I yeah. will give up my time. I will give up my, my skills for your goals. And you will, yep. if you think about corporations, the people at the top make the most money and do the least yep. work. Like that is, that is the model that functions, that, that makes the whole world go round yep. right now. And yet this is exactly what's happening. You have these soci people coming out of the gutter getting these jobs and, and negotiating how little or much they're going to get paid. They're going to spend their whole lives doing that. And meantime, like the people at the top and the debt managers and all these other people who, who are relying on their work are going to be making more and more and more money. And I they're going was, to be just scraping. And girl, and intertwined in that, like 
when Elamina has the baby go to Rowan's mother's house and his and, and the people on welfare, and she's like, Oh, you messed up. Yeah. Rowan was getting us out of here. Yeah. Like, Ooh. <laughs> oh girl, I was screaming. People, yeah. you gotta get the oh, great. turn it upside down, it's upside down. Oh, <laughs> I think it was very interesting in the way that the employment fair was emulative of the slave market and yet different from the slave market, right? <laughs> that that was just like my mind was blown. It was it was great. Can you talk a little bit about naming? Yeah. Naming yeah. fascinates me and naming and I feel like Elamina Dubois, like that's yeah. the so- voice. Mm-hmm. I name my my main characters in particular like I name my children. Like I just I just fall in love with a name. I it sounds right for the person that I imagine them mm-hmm. to become. And so Alamina's name uh, came to me really early. Um, I ha- never wavered on her name. And then I sort of whenever I pick a name, then I kind of build the other names around it. They can't say okay. sound the same. They can't start with the same letter. They can't right, have right. the same sort of like. They've all got to sound right when you list five of them together. They can't sound like they're twins unless they're supposed to be twins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, Alameda's name came early. It came from a song that a Montreal uh, writer, uh, Ghanaian Montreal writer um, called Alamina. And uh, it's funny. I've had such amazing questions from students about it, about like, did I do it to, uh, was it to demonstrate illuminate or eliminate? And I was like, wow. Ooh. Maybe, but no, <laughs> like that's not what we would do. <laughs> and then one kid, one grade nine student, grade nine or grade eight, actually came and said, "Look, I found this city in Ghana called Elmina City, and there's a city, a, a castle called Elmina Castle that was uh, important during the slave trade, and I'm wondering if that's where you got the name from." And wow. I was like, "Huh, that would be really smart." And I think what I, I keep meaning to go and ask the musician who's from Ghana, if that's actually where his it's, song came oh. from, because I think there might be a connection there. Um, but yeah, that name was just like, you know, my son's name's Eden and I was, it just was the right name. I just, I don't know why, but it felt right. And then it worked. And so, yeah, Elamina's name has always been Elamina and really um, just kind of came out of that song. And um, I really liked it. And then all the other names, really kind of worked around Rowan had a different name at some point and I can't remember what it was, but it, it ended up being not right name. Somebody, sometimes somebody famous does something or they name their child and you're like, oh, well, I can't name them that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't remember what Rowan's was. I think it was more that his and David's were too close or there was another character whose name was too close. And so I decided to change Rowan's. Well, we yeah. have to, we have to wrap up. Lisa, you got a question. <laughs> Oh, no, I was going to say that's like, as we talk about craft, right? That's one of the things that I I can't remember who's what workshop somewhere as we talk about naming that you should never start. You should never have two characters whose name starts with the same letter. Yeah. Like you shouldn't have an Aaron and an Angela or a David and a Donna, right? That there are these, in terms of just the craft of writing, there are these kind of, um, not guidelines, but suggestions. Yeah. Around what's the best way to name your characters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to say we have to wind up, but I have to say it was so, so wonderful talking with y'all mm-hmm. today. Thank you. And because I, I it's it's so this is why I do this. I'm so excited. Like <laughs> <laughs> because it's like it's it feels supportive. 
because there's so much as an as a literary artist and any other artist yeah. that there's that you need to build you need to find your community and build support around that community. Yes. We want to support the festival of literary diversity mm-hmm. and Vona voices of our nation arts foundation and lit fest soon to become culturally lit and do so many things. So we're connected. It, it, and I'm so glad I, I saw you, I found you jail on when I was, when I was researching lit fest. Also I did, um, uh, the uh what is it called the writers workshop the um Amherst Writers Workshop okay and and then the, I was in the New York Writers Coalition over covid and then Canada has a version of the writers coalition of the of that New York Writers Coalition Canadian Writers Coalition something and I don't somehow you I saw an interview with you on a morning show I was like oh I got to have it. <laughs> <laughs> I can get this Hunt her down. <laughs> and then she asked me to, to to do the panel. And I read your book and I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then it was after that that I actually got the job at Vona. And, and we're looking for faculty. And I was like, oh my gosh. I got that. <laughs> so we're glad. I'm so, so honored to have you with us. And, and my dear friend, Lisa, we thank you. We want people to what the book is right behind her, and I'm holding it. <laughs> time. And also, Stone Thrower, mm. put it in your library, people. Mm. Get the books. Look up Jael Richardson. Am I saying your name right? Is it Jael? Yeah. Yeah. Richardson. Um, dot com. She got a website. <laughs> Lisa is at Bona Voices. Bona and of course Elm City Lit Fest. Thank you for tuning in with us tonight. We had a lot of comments in um, on Facebook, and uh, hopefully everybody shares it. And thank you again. We will see you next year. This is our last podcast for this year. We will be coming back culturally lit. Thank you. Good night. Bye, everybody. Bye.